This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to another episode of Tao Unbound. I'm Ido Aharon, your host, and it is my great privilege and pleasure to host today Galia Fait. Welcome. Thank you, Ido. It's a pleasure to be here. Galia, to our viewers and listeners, is a social cause lawyer and also the executive director of the Institute on Law and Philanthropy at the Bookman Uh, Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. She got her first and second law degrees from Tel Aviv U, and now she is working here uh, full-time, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, the main reason why we invited you is because you actually discovered something, or you were part of a team that discovered something very, very counterintuitive to all of us who know Israelis, and that is that Israelis are actually very philanthropic, uh, especially in times of crisis. Because the perception, especially uh, overseas, is that Israelis are not so philanthropic. So tell us, what, what was the study? What, what prompted the study? And what were the main findings? So uh, I want to talk today about the solidarity and the pro-social behavior that we are seeing among Israelis and among institutional donors and foundations in Israel uh, towards the... needs the vast needs of the Israelis the evacuees the injured the victims since <laughs> the atrocities of the of October 7th and in the war since then um, you know the first thing that we, that comes to mind is that everybody in Israel and, and I think we know this without need of, of research everybody in Israel amidst the shock of Right there's the shock of the of October 7th looked around and said okay what can I do and people started cooking and mobilizing equipment and transporting evacuees from the Gaza envelope to the hotels and collecting household items and uh, clothes right to donate to the evacuees everybody was hectic about supporting that's the only thing that people felt that was right to do and and Actually, we see that also in our research. So we study the trends and the patterns of giving throughout the, the days of war. Uh, we have a, a weekly representative sample, and we ask people about their donations and their volunteering. And we've seen unprecedented uh, volunteering and donating. So if at normal times we see 47% of the Israelis who contribute to Right, to the nonprofit sector during the first weeks of the war it, it rose to 62 percent everybody that could do something did something and the amounts that were donated were twice as high so if at normal times we see people donating 230 shekels to to a cause right this it, it rose to 480 shekels to this cause and these the high numbers are keeping into the eighth week of the war even if though they're declining a little bit that's still very much higher than the normal days are higher than they were in the during the covet crisis so I think they attest right to the huge crisis that we are witnessing on the one side and then to the solidarity that we're witnessing on the other side uh, we Now, would you say that that uh, exceptional level of solidarity as being manifested by the high 
participation in the communal act of philanthropy and the individual act of philanthropy, would you say it's part of the psychological response to the trauma of October 7th? I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know to answer that. But I think the incentive that people, that the drive, they drive them, is to be part of this collective. We are in collective shock, we're in collective trauma, and we're in collective need. And people show they're part of the collective by assisting others within the collective. So, you know, we had, I mean, the, the greatest example is the uh, expo uh, volunteering uh, uh, led by the um, uh, brothers and sisters in arms, right? So they already on the second day on, on October 8th had a thousand volunteers and, and the following days 15,000 volunteers every day, right? Collecting, again, food, preparing food and collecting food and dispersing the food to... to and helping the, the, help front, the front, front lines, yeah. you know, soldiers on the front lines and, yeah. and the home front. And, but it's not only those uh, spontaneous organizations. We need to remember that the nonprofit sector in Israel is a very established, experienced, with expertise. These are well-founded organizations. They were also among the first responders. So we had whatever, and Latet, and Leket, and Israel, and Levichad, all uh, mobilizing their volunteers and their people to evacuate people from 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 the from the Gaza envelope, right, and to support them with food and. and now I, I wonder if your research showed any anything about um, the sensitivity of people to or the ability of people to make a distinction between legitimate philanthropic charitable causes and illegitimate. I can tell you that my that since October seven, I've been bombarded through the text system, text messages system on my phone with all sorts of NGOs and charities I've never heard of. Uh, question is, do you feel that people develop some sort of ability or at least sensitivity to distinguish legitimate from illegitimate charitable causes? There's always fraud, right? But fraud is on the sidelines. So uh, people mobilize their energy either through the WhatsApp groups and the uh, payment apps, you know, Beat and uh, and Paybox and the crowdfunding um, platforms. We have data from uh, from the JGive platform that was analyzed by my colleague Usnat Khazan and, and her colleague from uh, JGive uh, Bak Tool showing that the number of uh, donations through that platform doubled in, in October compared to any average month and the Did you amounts, have any, any numbers to share with us? 56,000 donations during October. That's double the, the average in any regular month. And 46 million shekels. That's four times the average of a regular month. This is looking only at donations from, from Israelis, from within Israel. So so I think there's always fraud, right? But there's, but there's the trust you give in your circles. And today we have, the, in the past few years, we have the um, GuideStar website where you can check on nonprofits in Israel and see they're viable. You have, you know, Natal in Iran and the Coalition for uh, Trauma opened their hotlines early on Saturday morning. They were swarmed with phone calls from within the shelters in, in the Gaza envelope, people needing immediate support mental and emotional and emotional support and since they've then since then 
they've been offering their support, you know, to evacuees, to the injured at the hospitals. They need the funding to actually pivot, right, all their work to support the whole of Israeli people because all Israeli people are traumatized and we need to make sure that it doesn't develop into, into post-trauma. Right. right, absolutely. And we will talk about that too. Um, any interaction that you see between uh, philanthropic efforts from overseas and local Israeli uh, philanthropies? Do you see any convergence? Yeah. Any yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning and asking that. I mean, you know, institutional philanthropy, um, strategic donors, and and foundations, both from Israel and abroad, have been supporting the nonprofit sector for for decades now, especially from the United States, but not only from from other from Europe and other countries, and. They had the same sense of urgency, right, since October 7th to donate to the organizations that they already support. And the, the organizations that they already support all pivoted to support with emotional, physical uh, uh, assistance to the, to the needy, to address all the needs. And then after a couple of weeks, you know, they poured tens of millions of shekels and dollars. The Jewish funders... Um, the JFNA, the Umbrella Organization for uh, the Federations in the United States, uh, North America collected over $750 million, right? And then they dispersed probably around a third of that, holding the rest because institutional philanthropy and strategic donors don't look only at the emergency in the moment, but they look into the future. They see the midterm and the long-term needs, and they have to strategize about it. So uh, the collaborations between Israeli donors and, and uh, overseas donors led to the uh, assembly of um, weekly meetings uh, from, um, held by the Jewish Funders Network and the former foundations and the Institute for Learned Philanthropy in which we uh, shared briefs on the situation, you know, of the evacuees, of the families of the abducted and hostages, of the needs of uh, uh, immediate education system within the evacuation spaces, of the growing tensions between Arabs and Jews in Israel, of the need for mental and emotional support in the short term and the long term to inform, right? This is all to inform both on the changing and developing needs in the immediate immediate uh, times, and for the midterm and long-term for philanthropists, for people that are already invested in philanthropy in Israel to prepare for the next stages. And obviously a big part uh, is, uh, and again, I know that you're, you're not trained to deal with it, the psychological dimension of it, but you don't need to be a psychologist to understand that people are anxious because of October 7th. And one of the reasons that contributed greatly to their anxiety is the fact that official Israel didn't really function post uh, October 7. And, and I think that made it even more important for people to, to pitch in and to give and to be part of, of this, you know, uh, desire to fix things. Yeah, so, so here's my take on this. I think it's very disturbing and infuriating that the government response is incapable to, to meet the scale of the atrocities and the needs, the magnitude of the crisis. And I think, 
We have to admit there are, there, there are many there are many reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that there have been budget costs to social services for the for the last two decades at least, and we see the mental health services and the welfare services in needs of you know, billions of shekels in normal days. And whatever doesn't work, the system that doesn't work well in normal days will never work well in emergencies. And so philanthropy in the nonprofit sector was the first to respond and is still the first to hand out assistance. But it's very dangerous because we cannot let philanthropy lead the social services in Israel, they cannot carry the bulk of social services, of the, the delivery of social services on their on their uh, shoulders. It has to be only contem contemplary, right, or supplementary to what the government should be doing. It's important to say, though, you know, we have, in some cases, very well-equipped and well-trained government officials who are doing their best to serve the immediate needs of evacuees and the injured, right? And we have a great uh, health system that is giving uh, medical treatment, and we have the um, National Security Institute is paying, you know, for some of the need, uh, essential needs of the evacuees. But the system is rot. So these great, great officials, government officials, can't move, can't mobilize funding, or can't, be innovative of, uh, about mobilizing funding. They can't show flexibility. Their hands are tied behind their backs because the system is dry. And the question is, uh, is one of effectiveness. Uh, and I know that many of our listeners and our, and our viewers are friends of the university and probably many of them do actively participate in this wave of this charitable wave that you're describing, which is really unprecedented. Perhaps only 1948 was, uh, you know, triggered such a, a massive, you know, uh, outpouring of support, financial support and otherwise, including volunteers. Um, do we have any way to look at the effectiveness of those uh, donations through your research? Well, ass assessing effectiveness is always uh, long-term, right? Uh, needs long-term long research. We see the immediate effects, right, of the charitable giving and the spontaneous volunteering and the nonprofit work supporting, you know, the Nova Party survivors, right, for example. So we see that it's the, the effects are immediate, but how effective it will be in the long-term containing post-trauma or delaying the post-trauma, we, we need time, right, to research the effectiveness of giving. But I think it's uh, safe to say that the well-established nonprofits in Israel, the ones that have a lot of experience and expertise, are effective at their work. We have a lot in the past to show for that. And it's good to support, to keep on supporting these organizations because we can trust that they will do their best to develop, you know, new models and, and systems to address the needs in Israel today. Now, for our uh, audience that is interested in following your research going in, going forward, uh, tell us a little bit about the methodology and where can they find the, the findings and, and uh, keep themselves up to date. So, first of all, it's important to say that all of the reports are uh, published on our website, the Institute for Law and Philanthropy at the Buchmann Faculty of Law. You can find the uh, reports on the uh, 
surveys that we're doing to collect data on the trends and patterns of, of giving, and also all the briefs, both in English and in Hebrew, about the different topics that I mentioned, the different social causes and the different developing needs, you know, the educational system and the Arabs and, and Jews in Israel, and even vocational training in light of the, in the shadow of this crisis, which is, all, which is also an economic crisis. And we will keep on posting these on our website. At some point, these reports will, will delve back into the data to perform deeper research, like academic research, right? But we're, we're not there yet. We're so engaged. I mean, we ourselves are so engaged in the need to support the philanthropic sector right now that we put aside the academic research and we're shedding light on what's going on. And uh, I should add that we're going to add the link to your website with the, with the study, both to our video and to our audio uh, files here. Um, any, um, anything that you can tell us about, um, you know, we, we know that coordination is a big thing when you have so many groups out there trying to do the right thing. What have we learned about the level uh, of organization in that, uh, again, new wave of charitable giving. So I think it's important to note that the civil society, the sector of civil society, should keep on being spontaneous and lean and frenzy and innovative because that's how we want to uh, reach out to all these untapped needs, right? And, and, and untapped resources as well. But then on the, other, on the other hand, the more organized and um, strategic philanthropy and the more organized and strategic nonprofits are well organized and communicate between themselves. So we have uh, infrastructure organizations, both for the nonprofit sector and the philanthropic sector, that gather all these organizations that you know, develop tools and means to approach um, mental or emotional needs or educational needs, or after-school educational needs, or welfare needs, or vocational training needs, and they um, connect, right, and learn from each other. There's always, always more to do on the front of collaboration. But then the Jewish Funders Network, as a network of funders, and the form of foundations as a network for foundations, and the Institute for Law and Philanthropy, which we consider a in infrastructure organizations as well. The fact that we do these briefings, we assemble both uh, foundation leaders and uh, private donors for these briefings is also a way to get them to collaborate. So we see groups of funders collaborating ar around the planning of the development to address the mental and emotional needs or the educational needs in the next five years. Now, I'm assuming you're also inviting representatives of the authorities to those discussions. Yeah. So, for example, there's a big question of, uh, we, we now have a crisis in Israel of hundreds, I don't know the exact number, people say 200,000, some people say 350,000 displaced Israelis, people that left their homes in the south because they were destroyed, and people that left their homes in the north because they were threatened. And so the question is, Obviously, this would require a coordinated effort of both the philanthropic world and the government. How do you see that happening in years to come? Because this is a big project. This will take years to rehabilitate those uh, communities. 
That's a very, very good question. Thank you for posing this. Um, so the first thing to note is that even the government doesn't have a good data system to follow up on where people when where people were evacuated to and if they stayed there or not, if they come and go. I mean, people are free to go. And imagine yourself living with a, in one bedroom with a five, you know, with three, three of your children for over a month when you're traumatized. That's not a good setting. People need to go. So... So to begin with, the infrastructure for, of data in, in, for the government is really missing. So that's why you don't know and people don't know how many evacuees or self-evacuees and where they are, right? That's, that's to begin with. A lot of effort is going to follow up on where people are and what their needs are. The local authorities are really helpful on that, local authorities that the evacuees are staying with, if it's Jerusalem or Natanya or... Uh, Eilat, right? They're giving their support and their services. So, um, so the collaboration that we're foreseeing is among, you know, philanthropy, the civil society, and nonprofit sector, the local authorities, and the government, right? Uh, it's a long way to get there because the government doesn't really collaborate among itself too well. That's why it needs uh, the Tkumas authority outside of the ministries, right? It's not a ministerial uh, authority. It's outside the ministry. And there are great people in Kuma, but they also need to learn what's going on. They need to be on our briefs, right, to learn what's going on. And at some point, all these um, authorities will have to work together to realize how best to invest, not only, not only to repair, but to eventually grow out of this catastrophe, out of this crisis, to have better social justice, better inclusive economy. This, this, is, this is the goal, right? Yeah. This is always the goal during a routine and during crisis. Um, listen, we can talk about this for a long time, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world. And I just wanted to uh, end this uh, wonderful conversation with you with, uh, with a question. I have a friend who actually studied right here in this building but got his PhD from Princeton, who during COVID, he, um, I had a conversation with him and he told me uh, the best way to look at COVID is to think of COVID as the dress rehearsal for the big thing, for the real thing. Meaning every crisis should be viewed as the dress rehearsal for the bigger crisis that will come. Question, as someone who's been in the system for many years, have we learned anything from COVID? Have we used the lessons from COVID during this crisis that uh, erupted post-October 7th? I think we have, at least the civil society and philanthropic se sector has learned a lot and have uh, used the platforms that were developed through the COVID crisis to go back, you know, and assemble all, the, all these people for briefs and uh, the search for needs and the way to address these needs. These are things that we are more prepared we came in more prepared due to the developments we developed through COVID, right um there's still a lot more to do on the government side yes believe me i spent 25 years <laughs> in government i know that i know that i always tell my students that uh if they consider two options regarding government behavior malice or ineptitude, at least when it comes to the Israeli government, I tell them, always choose ineptitude first before you accuse them of being malicious. 
but uh, but I, I couldn't thank you enough. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you. On behalf of, uh, of our society. And, um, and I, I just want to end please. this conversation, please, you know, with the hope and the demand, right, of the return of the hostages and and of our soldiers, our brave soldiers, and, and the end of this, this war, and to demand our leaders, both Palestinian and the Israeli leaders, to choose a path of peace. And accountability. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, we, we need them to be more accountable throughout the entire Western world, not just here. We need a change uh, of perception. Yeah, you know? yeah. We, well, we, we need to... I to thank you for educating us and inspiring us. Me. And hopefully we'll get to host you here in our podcast again. And from Tel Aviv to our viewers and listeners back home, until our next episode, goodbye from Tel Aviv. This is Tawan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.